didn't hear, I'm not preaching in a mask. So let's just get that out the way. I'm also a little underdressed today. <laughs> but as they say, America is a free country. And so I got to go pick up my son from, my, from his grandmother's house, his nana's house. And I didn't feel like wearing jeans to take them off to wear these in the 100 degree weather. So I have a feeling that you all will be all right with that. All right, so we are in a series that we are talking about with the political, racial, all kinds of co everything. The turmoil that we're experiencing right now as a nation has changed all of our lives for many different reasons in many different ways. And what we wanted to do was bring a biblical perspective on how do we think through this? What is the way out of this? What's the way out, particularly of the political, racial turmoil in our midst? It's not the first time our country has seen this, and it won't be the last. But we need a way out, a way out that, that surpasses the current moment and future moments should they come upon us. And so I want to offer a, a, a framework from the Old Testament from the story of Josiah, but the framework has a name, it's inheritance. It's inheritance. We live in a culture right now where everyone is blaming everyone for everything and people are taking responsibility for things that they shouldn't and some people are taking responsibility for things that they should. And so we wanna find out what is the way out of all of this? What's the way out? What's the biblical perspective to understand the believer's responsibility as it relates to how we live in this culture today? And I wanna submit one word that it's called inheritance. A couple of weeks ago, in fact, two of my sermons ago, I walked through 2 Kings 22 and laid out Inheritance, but before I did that, I got to sort of a biblical, a brief biblical theology of this word inheritance. It's actually something that many people believe, and even non Christians understand this idea of inheritance. But I wanted to just briefly, just brief reminder of what I mean by inheritance. First Peter 1.18 actually uses the word inheritance and it says this, and I think this is. This is a good perspective, one, because it's from the scripture, but two, it applies across the boardwalk. So 1 Peter 1.18, he says this, writing to believers who are, who are displaced, who are in what's called the diaspora, who are all over the place, many of them afraid for their lives because they believe in Jesus. He says this in 1 Peter 1.18, he says, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold. So his perspective is that people, believers, the church that he's talking to have been redeemed from an empty way of life that they have inherited. He's not talking about a physical or biological inheritance. Like, you know, we all look like some of our parents or we have mannerisms like our parents, but he's talking about the actual habits of morality that you have, you've inherited from your fathers. This idea of inheritance is fundamentally biblical and almost fundamentally forgotten, except in particular ways, except when it comes to the doctrine of sin, we know we inherited from Adam and Eve. 
If we're fortunate enough to know the theology, then we know that because of our faith in Christ, Romans 8 tells us, we've inherited his obedience. We've inherited some of the gifts, some of the rewards that he gives. In fact, we're called co-heirs in Romans 8. This also applies to non-Christians. People who don't believe in God understand inheritance and see it as fundamentally important. My wife was recently talking about watching a documentary on Casey Kasem. He was a radio uh, personality in the 70s, especially 80s when I grew up. It was always Casey Kasem's the weekly top 40. Well, when he died about eight or nine years ago, his children, he had children from different women, they were fighting over the inheritance. The money that was left behind and the, the proper way to, to deal with his body and all the things that were happening, they, they were taking each other to court over who had rights to the inheritance. So even non-Christians understand inheritance, but they usually think of it as what I've received from my relatives, particularly health. Most people want to know, you know, what, what, what the health conditions are like on their mom and dad's side because you may have inherited something. People understand the category of inheritance. It's fundamentally biblical and it's our way out. John 15, 18, Jesus said this, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you were not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. So he says, remember, remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So here Jesus is saying, listen, if you are a believer, because you believe in me, and you're going to follow what I said do, the world is going to hate you. They're going to hate you. This is important because we live in a culture where everything is about love, equality, acceptance, a definition of justice, and righteousness that sometimes rival what the Bible says. Jesus says, look, if people get mad at you because you believe in me, remember, they were mad at me first. You've inherited that. This is a, this is a different message, but an important word for the church today because we're so busy trying to be liked by everyone that we're trying to make a gospel that is not offensive. And if it is offensive, then let's take the offensive parts out of the gospel and we end up having a Jefferson gospel where he took all the parts out of the Bible that he didn't like and made his own version. We can't make our own version of an unoffensive Christianity. We're not trying to be offensive, but truth is often offensive. But we live in a culture that says, hey, if it's offensive, it has to go. And if you are a genuine believer, you have to accept the fact that you've inherited being offensive because Jesus is offensive because he's truth. This is the angle that we're going with as we look at this. This is inheritance. And this is important. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. But we've inherited it. 
If you're a Christian in America, it doesn't matter if you just got here or if you've been here your whole life. If you profess to be a Christian in America, there is a stigma attached to that word. And whatever the negative stigma is attached to the word Christian, if you proclaim to be that, then you have inherited that stigma. Unless you go against the grain of that stigma, which we see some believers wanting to do under the premise of being loving. But loving is never accepting or approving of things the Bible says you cannot. We have inherited a mission. We've inherited a Messiah, a mission, and a morality. But we also have inherited some judgment as a result of this. We're going to go back to the Josiah framework, and we're going to focus... Let's just comb over this one more time, and we're going to look at particularly the aspect. There are four, five components of this. We've touched on the first four somewhat briefly. Last week, we looked at specifically judgment, so we're not going to touch that today. But let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. We're going to look at this in sections briefly, and then we're going to zoom in on the fifth component that Josiah takes that I believe is a blueprint for the modern-day believer and how we should respond. Please make no mistake in thinking that because it's the Old Testament that somehow it's irrelevant. That No, this is the Bible that Jesus used. Romans 15, 4 tells us that the Old Testament was written for our instruction. We benefit from this reality, and I believe it's one of the best blueprints for how we are to be in this particular polarized culture, if you are a Christian. 2 Chronicles 34 retells the same story. Chronicles tells the stories of kings, and sometimes they give you a different angle or a different chronological order, hence the word chronicles. Sometimes it's in order. The other stories just give you some details. These time, this one gives you order. So we looked at 2 Kings 22, the story of Josiah. We're going to look at now 2 Chronicles 34. We're going to look at the whole chapter, but we're going to break it down in sections, beginning in verse 1, reading from the CSB translation, and I quote, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the Lord's sight and walked in the ways of his ancestor David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor David, and in his 12th year, he began to cleanse Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherah poles, the carved images, and the cast images. Then in his presence, the altars of Baals were thrown down, were torn down, and he chopped down the shrines that were above them. He shattered the Asherah poles, the carved images, and the cast images, crushed them to the dust, and scattered them over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars. So he cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. He did the same in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, as far as Naphtali and, and their surrounding mountain shrines. He tore down the altars and he smashed the Asherah poles and the carved images to powder. He chopped down all the shrines throughout the land of Israel and returned to Jerusalem. Let me make sure you hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we're tearing down statues. So I know that's what's happening right now. That's not what I'm saying. Here's what's important about this particular scene. Since Josiah was made king at eight years old, eight years old, 
My youngest son is eight, about to be nine. I can't imagine what the world would be like if he were king. He's wild because he's the most like me. It's his gift and his curse. He becomes king at eight years old. And then we see in verse three that in his eighth year of his reign, so he's now 16 years old. So he's king at eight. At 16, while he was still a youth, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor, David. So he's eight years old. He inherits this kingdom from his father who was evil, his grandfather who was evil. He has to go back to his great-grandfather, Hezekiah, to find any good in the family lineage, good as defined by God. Now think about your great-grandfather. You don't really probably know him. You may have never met him, or you definitely probably don't see him that often if he's alive. So Josiah has no, no recent history to latch on to. But somehow, when he's 16, says he begins to seek the God of his ancestor, David. He becomes a believer at 16. He follows the Lord. And then it says, continuing, and then his 12th year, so four years later, so now he's 20 years old. Four years later, he begins to cleanse Judah and Jerusalem of the high places. So at 16, he becomes a believer. And as he grows, he gains conviction. And four years after becoming a believer, he says, I got to do something about the evil that I see in the culture. So he begins to cleanse Judah and Jerusalem, both kingdoms. If you don't know the history, Israel was split into two kingdoms, the northern and southern kingdom. He is the king of the southern kingdom. Jerusalem is the northern kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom. And he begins to cleanse Judah and Jerusalem of the evil. So at 20, 16, he becomes a believer. 20, he starts to grow and he starts to realize and get conviction and make reform happen. I love the process that you see here. He gets saved, but look at what he does. It says four years later, he begins to act. He grows. He grows. He grows in conviction. He grows in maturity. But the growth is first personal. See, for the first four years, he starts to grow. He understands who the Lord is, understands what his role is, understands who he is. And he begins to act in that conviction. And so you see personal growth, but then it extends to the community. Now, mind you, he's one of the Israelites. He understands it and has a legacy of knowing who the God of the Israelites is. He didn't just stumble across that. This is the fundamental identity of who his people are. But at 16, he reconnects with that. And you see this growth. He's probably known of God his whole life. There were people around him, I'm sure, that know the God of the Israelites. 
This tells us something about biblical maturity. What's interesting, and I think it's important to note the emphasis by God that he was still a youth. In this eighth year, he was still a youth, and he began to seek God. So all the people that are far older than him, that know of God, that are mature because they've known the God of Israel for a lot longer, the scripture emphasizes that he was a youth. And it says, he began to seek the God of his ancestor, David. It doesn't even tell us how. It doesn't even tell us that someone invested in him, but something stirred in his heart that he began to seek at a young age. So you see, biblical maturity is not how long you've known of God. Biblical maturity is measured by how much you believe God and act according to what you know. This is a real statement. Because there's a lot of people that know of God. But James said, even the demons believe and are afraid. Who cares if you know God? The question is, what do you believe about him? And how do you act in light of what you know? And so as Josiah gets to know God personally, it changes and he grows and matures and he realizes, hold on, we can't worship the God of Israel and have all this evil around. And as king, he says, we're tearing it down. Not only tearing it down, he's crushing the idols into dust and then pouring it on the graves of the people who worship them. Today, we would say that was gangster. Notice what he didn't inherit. He didn't inherit faith from God, from his ancestors. That came as a result of the grace of God. We continue in verse 8. This, is, this is passage is the one we spent the most times on in 2 Kings 22. So I'm going to read through this pretty fast and just make a few points because this isn't where we're hanging out as much today. Verse 8, it says, It's in the 18th year of his reign in order to cleanse the land and the temple. So his 18th year. So now... He's 26. So he, he, he becomes king at eight. He gets saved at 16. He starts to really go after the Lord in terms of making changes, reform at 20. And then now six years later, now he's 26. It's 18 years of his reign. Still a young man. For those of you that are here that are not 26, you can be like, hey, what do you mean? Still young, got a long way to go, Lord willing. In the 18th year of his reign, in order to cleanse the land and the temple, Josiah sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, along with Messiah, the governor of the city and the court historian, Joah, son of Joaz, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. So they went to the high priest Hilkiah and gave him the silver brought into God's temple. The Levites and the doorkeepers had collected it from Manasseh, Ephraim, and from the entire remnant of Israel and, all, and from all Judah, Benjamin, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They gave it to those doing the work, those who oversaw the Lord's temple. So they were rebuilding the temple and this money was given to them to be able to pay workers to be able to finish this work. Verse 11, they gave it to the carpenters and builders that also used it to buy quarried stones and timbers for joining the making beams and for the buildings that Judas king had destroyed. Judas kings had destroyed. Judas kings had destroyed. 
That's an important statement. Mm -hmm. So he got Judas kings destroy their own biblical heritage. The men were doing the work with integrity. Their overseers were Jahath and Obadiah, Levites from the Merorites, and Zechariah and Meshulam from the Kohathites as supervisors. The Levites were all skilled with musical instruments. They were also over the porters and were supervising all doing the work task by task. Some of the Levites were secretaries, officers, and gatekeepers. When they brought out the silver that had been deposited in the Lord's temple, the priest Hilkiah found the book of the law written by the hand of Moses. This is the book of Deuteronomy. Almost all scholars agree it was the book of Deuteronomy. Consequently, Hilkiah told the court secretary, Shaphan, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple, and he gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan took the book to the king and, and also reported, your servants are doing all that was placed in their hands. They have emptied out all the silver that was found in the Lord's temple and have given it to the overseers and to those doing the work. Then the court secretary, Shaphan, told the king, the priest Hilkiah gave me a book, and Shaphan read it from the presence of the king, read from it in the presence of the king. When the king this is Josiah, 26. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Then he commanded Hilkiah, Achiham, son of Shaphan, Abdon, son of Micah, the court secretary Shaphan, and the king's servant, Isaiah. He says, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for those remaining in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that was found. For great is the Lord's wrath that is poured out on us because our ancestors have not kept the word of the Lord to do everything written in this book. So we're going to briefly look at these stages because we talked about these some two sermon, three sermons ago. But it's important to stop here. The first thing that he does when he hears the law read, that's an important reality because what Josiah was doing from age 20 to 26, he was doing without the book of the law. It wasn't the instruction he got. He was pursuing the, the God of his ancestor David is what we get. We don't know to what degree and to how and what manner, but this is what he's doing. And the first thing we see him do when he hears the actual word of God read, he grieves. He grieves. Now, remember what it says about him. It says that he was a just man. He didn't go to the right or to the left. So he's not grieving because he's convicted of his own personal sin. He's grieving over the sin against God that his people have done historically leading up to the moment that he hears the word of God read. And it's a fascinating truth because what you see in this passage and you see this in other places in the Bible is that biblical maturity grieves over sin because it's against God. Yeah. Biblical maturity grieves over sin against God because you love God. Could it be said today that the church grieves over sin because it's against God? It's possible. Sure there are. We're not monolithic. But I would submit when you look at the culture today, you look at Christians today, you look at the church as best as we can understand it, maybe just in our country. 
as best as we can understand that we have social media, we're kind of quasi mono, mono we're kind of quasi omnipresent, right? Not really, but we can go anywhere with just a few strokes and see any part of the word. We're sort of quasi-omnipotent. We can be anywhere, quasi-omniscient. We can get all this information and we get overwhelmed by all of it so we can get a, a, a landscape of what's happening. And if you look at that, I think that would be easy to say that we don't know how to grieve over the sins of the church against God. I don't think we've developed that skill We tend to process our faith as individuals instead of as a community of people that profess to believe in God. So when we read the Bible, we're thinking of how it affects me. And we think of it so individualistically, and it's always about me, this autonomous individual. And we read, and, and then when we grieve over things, hopefully we grieve over our own sin. But for the most part, we just grieve sort of in general. We don't think of the Bible as speaking to all the people that I know that profess to believe. This is about us. It's not just about me. And see, when we process it just as individuals, what happens is we tend to just, we, it applies to me only. I'm not trying to judge them. They are who they are. We don't want to say anything about that. We don't even want to grieve over that. We don't know how to grieve over the sins that happen in the church. We know how to be self-righteous towards them. We know how to mock them. We know how to put up inflammatory posts and we know how to self-righteously judge people. We know how to come to church and, and, and disconnect and get on our phones and do everything else. We know how to grieve over celebrities that die, but we don't grieve over the word of God. And he grieves over the word. This is a shame. I was this morning, no pun intended, grieving as I was thinking and praying over the message. Like, wow, Lord. I don't think I grieve enough over the sins of the community of people who profess to believe in you. This is critical to bringing about change. Because when you grieve over the culture of people who profess to believe, it means you feel connected. There's some love for them. You think about what do we need to do instead of what do I need to do. I'm not talking about your immediate family. Yeah. Unbelievers will grieve over their immediate family. Yeah. I believe Jesus was getting at this when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, mm -hmm. for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Where are the mourners? Where, you, you're so offended because people disagree with your perspective. Where are the tears over the fact that that perspective is more important than the glory of God? If we don't learn how to grieve over sin because it's against God, then we'll tend to focus on the sins that we think are against us. And they're often not listed as sins against God, like voting. <laughs> Do we grieve over sin that is against God? But uh, 
That's, that's a learned thing. Yes. Let's, let's bring it home. Do we grieve over our own sin against God? Are we so desensitized to our own sin that hearing the word read has no personal effect? I mean, I've done this too. I'm not shaming anybody. But how do you come to church? How do you read your Bible? How do you read things that God is clearly saying, hey, you're not doing what you're supposed to do and you're distracted by everything else but this? We are so desensitized because God is sort of a, a product of what we do. Yeah. We don't grieve over our sins because we are not only desensitized, we blame others. Yeah. Listen, if I say anything you don't like, or anyone, which is going to happen, so it's happened these last few sermons, I'll take that. I'm a First Corinthians 4 kind of guy. If your response is sinful, you will not blame me before God. In fact, if someone puts a gun to your head, you are still responsible for your decision. See, we blame others. What I love about Josiah, Josiah didn't hear the word of the Lord read, and it didn't say, men, our ancestors, men, those chumps. Look at what they left us. Now we in this mess. He didn't blame them. He didn't blame his father and his grandfather. He didn't cry out to the Lord because of what they did. He cried out to the Lord because he inherited that he understands the lack of faith and obedience to God and that God is not pleased, so he can say with a clear, grieving conscience, man, some of us have forgotten how to grieve over our sin because we're blaming other people for even tempting us. Listen, fam, I don't know what tempts you. I'm sorry if I post something or say something. I'm not intending to tempt anybody, but I'm not going to be the recipient or take the blame. You will stand before God and give a credit for your sin, your response, my response. All of our responses are not going to be like, well, Lord, he said this. Well, Pastor Kurt did this. And the Lord's going to tell you, well, you have the word. What did it, why didn't you do what it said? We've forgotten how to grieve personally and corporately. Man, the church is in a bad place. Are we worried about who to vote for? It's this people's fault. It's that people's fault. What if God says it's your fault? What if he said, I wanted you to pray. I let this happen so that my people would pray. I let it happen so that my people would cry out to me. And all you did was complain that it was happening. This is what the Lord's telling me I'm doing, so I'm sorry if, it's, if he's telling you you're doing it too, then you're in good company. <laughs> he grieves, he inquires. Hey, go, go to the Lord. He hit everybody. He didn't ask one person. He wanted to make sure that everybody, hey, you, 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 I don't even know you that well, but you go too. Everybody go and inquire of the Lord. 
And you know what's interesting? Before he even heard from the Lord, he already believed that the wrath of God was on them. Mm-hmm. Now think about this. This was after he had done reforms. This was after he had been tearing down Asherah poles, pouring the ashes on men's graves, getting rid of all these temples and idols of false worship. He had been doing this on his own before hearing the word. But once he heard that, he had the maturity enough to know just hearing the word, he knew we're in trouble. We're in trouble. He wasn't thinking, oh, man, look, I'm all right because I've been doing all this stuff and there's some good that we've done, so we should be all right, right? The Lord, I mean, we... He was like, before he even heard from the Lord, he was like, we are in trouble. Why? Because, man, God is a holy God. And he put in his word and we haven't been doing it. He had enough maturity to look at the word and be like, wow. He looked at the word and he looked at the world and was like, wow. These are not matching up. He didn't blame anybody. He grieved because he knew like, man, God has displeased And he understood that God's judgment was because he's been displeased repeatedly for generations, years upon years upon years. He believed that the word of God is still true. And this is we come to our culture. See, people believe things about God. They don't necessarily believe the word of God. But you'll hear people believe things about God. People believe the positive characteristics about God, but not the negative consequences for abandoning abandoning the morality that this positive God says you should have. See, he believed the word of God is still true. And when he heard it, he responded biblically. This begs the question, what part of God do you really believe to be true? Do we really think God cares about the unrest that's happening? Do we think that he cares about us individually and how we live and then corporately the church? Do we think that God cares about the people in this nation so he's going to tell Jonah that did you want me to destroy the whole nation? I got people in there that want me to be, I got pe-. you think God doesn't think like that still? You think God doesn't care that there are people who vote that side and vote this side and believe this and who think this and Really? You don't think God cares that some people are, are, are for education reform and some are not? That some people are for criminal justice reform and some are not? You think God doesn't care that these people are all over the place and he has people everywhere? This is what his word says. He cares. He cares. Biblical maturity can read God's word, look at the culture and be like, man, we are off. Personally, communally. He understood we've inherited something. So he sends them to go to talk to the prophetess, prophetess Holder, and then he makes a covenant. And here's what it says, beginning in verse 22. We're going to read through these 11 verses and then look at what happened. Beginning in verse 22, he says this. So Hilkiah and those the king had designated went to the prophetess Holder, the wife of Shalom, son of Tokath, son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. That joint sounds like the Chronicles of Narnia, son, the keeper of the wardrobe. I read that a couple times, like the keeper of the wardrobe. That's an interesting description. What do you do, man? I keep the wardrobe, man. I mean. <laughs> she lived in Jerusalem in the second district. 
They spoke with her about this. She said to them, this is what the Lord, God of Israel, says. Say to the man who sent you to me, talking about Josiah, this is what the Lord says. I am about to bring disaster on this place and on its inhabitants, fulfilling all the curses written in the book that they read in the presence of the king of Judah. Because they have abandoned me and burned incense to other gods so as to anger me with all the works of their hands. My wrath will be poured out on this place and it will, be, it will not be quenched. Say this to the king of Judah who, who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says of Israel. As for, as for you, you humbled yourself. This is it. This is what I love about this. This is a real clear distinction. He says this, as for the words that you heard, because your heart was tender, verse 27, and you humbled yourself before God, you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I myself have heard, this is the Lord's declaration. So he recognizes his individual grief and desire for God's glory to be restored. And he says, I see you. I see you. There are those of us in the midst, in this room and watching. The Lord sees us. Not just the judgment like, Reddit, what you posting? What you tweeting? But I hear you praying. And he says this. This is to Josiah. Verse 28. I will indeed gather you to your fathers and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster that I am bringing on this place and on its inhabitants. Then they reported to the king. So the king sent messengers and gathered all the elders of Judah in Jerusalem. The king went up to the Lord's temple with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, as well as the priests and the Levites, all the people from the oldest to the youngest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. Then the king stood at his post and made a covenant in the Lord's presence to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments, his decrees and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul in order to carry out the words of the covenant written in this book. He had all those present in Jerusalem and Benjamin agreed to it. So all the inhabitants of Jerusalem carried out the covenant of God, the God of their ancestors. So Josiah removed everything that was detestable from all the lands belonging to the Israelites. And he required all who were present in Israel to serve the Lord their God throughout his reign. They did not turn aside from the Lord, the God of their ancestors. What I love about this is when he was told, look, you're not going to experience the judgment. God didn't say all the people that you're around. He said, you're not because I've heard you. This is how godly he is. When Hezekiah heard this, this is just a couple chapters back. When Hezekiah was sick and prayed to the Lord and the Lord restored him, gave him 14, year, I think it was 14 more years of life. And the Lord told him through the prophet that the Assyrians are going to come and plunder you. I mean, he said, your men are going to be made eunuchs. But the Lord said, but because of you, you will not see this in your lifetime. And the scripture, the word of God says, and I'm paraphrasing, Hezekiah was like, all right, well, shit, it ain't going to happen during my lifetime, so let it be. <laughs> he says, so let it be. Like, I'm good. But that's not what he does. He doesn't say, oh, okay, well, I'm good. Y'all in trouble. No, you know what he does? He gets everyone and says, we need. It wasn't just I'm good. It wasn't just I'm good with the Lord. It's like we're all, That's good. we all need to follow.
the Lord. It was the reality of judgment, despite some of the good that happens. Remember, last week, God doesn't think that happened a long time ago. God thinks that happened. And he judges. It's the reality of judgment. Now, we're going to briefly answer three questions. Why did he make a covenant? The first is obvious. Because of the impending judgment for sin. He knew this in verse 21. He said this, go inquire of the Lord for me and for those remaining in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that was found. For great is the Lord's wrath that is poured out on us because our ancestors have not kept the word of the Lord in order to do everything written in this book. He knew that. And it was confirmed in verse 24 and 25. This is what the Lord says. I'm about to bring disaster on this place and on its inhabitants, fulfilling all the curses written in the book that they've read in the presence of the king of Judah. Specifically Deuteronomy 20. If you want to really know what he's talking about, read Deuteronomy 28. Read Deuteronomy 28. It's more than that, but read Deuteronomy 28. If you really want to know what he heard and was like, man, read Deuteronomy chapter 28. Verses 12, blessings for obeying God. Verses 13 to like 60, curses for disobedience. You don't have to read it right now. We're still in the sermon, but you can read it. You know. He makes a covenant not just because it was impending judgment. You know why he makes a covenant? Because it was the right thing to do. You see, if he was worried about judgment, then he would have been like, well, I'm all right. I mean, I've been doing my thing. Y'all better keep up. I've been cleansing temples, tearing down poles. I mean, I'm, I'm good. It wasn't just impending judgment. It was because it's the right thing to do. We need to take this seriously because of who God is and who God says we are. It's the right thing to do. It's not just to avoid the consequences. He wasn't worried as much about being judged. He was worried about the glory of God being seen, and he was willing to get everyone on board because that was the most important thing. If this were true of the church today, that's why he made a covenant. Second question, what was the covenant? Verse 31 and 32. Then the king stood at his post and made a covenant in the Lord's presence to follow the Lord and to keep his commands, his decrees, and his statutes with all his heart, with all his soul, in order to carry out the words of the covenant written in this book. He had all those present in Jerusalem and Benjamin agree to it. So all the inhabitants of Jerusalem carried out the covenant of God, the God of their ancestors. Covenant. He made a commitment to obey the law of God. That's the covenant. I'm going to obey the law, the word. I'm going to obey. We're going to follow the law. He made a commitment to take action against the evil that was allowed among them. And he was already doing that. He wasn't playing. It wasn't like, man, I'm just going to read a little bit more, pray a little bit more. It was like, we're going to obey and then we're going to take action against the evil. We're going to tear down these poles, these altars. We're going to burn them. 
And he made a commitment not to be evil like what had been among them. So you can't make a covenant with the Lord to do something. You make a covenant with the Lord to obey him, then you're making a covenant with the devil not to. Just, that's just how it works. If you say, I'm committed to following the Lord, then you're telling the enemy, the world, and your flesh, I'm not, I'm not committed to following you. It just, you can't do both. What he said, you can't serve God and can't serve two masters, right? You will love one and hate the other. They made a commitment to obey the Lord. This was before the Spirit of God. This was under all the rituals. There's a lot to do. This is when you sin, go get you a couple of doves. Take them to the priest, blood everywhere. They made a commitment to follow the Lord, to be against the evil that was allowed among them. This was not a pleading for forgiveness. This was a commitment to say, Lord, we live this. They weren't there saying, please don't judge us. They were saying, man, we're going to obey you even if you do judge us. And there was no even if. The Lord didn't say, well, I'll, I'm, if, you do, if you don't do this, I'm going to do this. The Lord, it wasn't conditional. The decision was made. The decision was made. They didn't go before the Lord to say, to beg that he wouldn't judge them and we'll obey you, Lord, if you just stop. It was like, nah, it's, it's a wrap. It's happening. Josiah, you're not going to see it. And sure enough, Josiah died around 607 B.C., and Nebuchadnezzar and them came in there around 605 B.C. Some people say 586 B.C. Either one. They was there within 20 years after Josiah's death. The Lord said, all right, you're not going to see it. But as soon as you die, it was almost like God was like, all right, he's getting ready to go. He's getting ready to go. All right, he's out of there. Go ahead, Nebuchadnezzar, do your thing. And sure enough, the book of Daniel is the fruit of what happened to Judah. And everybody was taken, even the righteous. Josiah escaped it. He didn't say everybody would. But God was still faithful to those who were righteous. We get stories like the lion's den. We get stories like before the, the idol statue, when they don't bow down to it, get thrown in the fire. Nebuchadnezzar looks in and says, hey, how many did we throw in there? And they were like, three, O king. And he was like, man... I see a fourth person walking in there looking like a son of man. Then he said, hey, y'all, come out of there. They came out, didn't smell like fire burn or nothing. No barbecue. Don't be afraid of the judgment. God's faithful. If he is truly judging us, which I think he is, and we can disagree on that, fine. I laid out my case last week. We can disagree on that. I believe he fundamentally is. I can't look at his word, look at the world, and think anything else is happening. Y'all sound like old Ebony and Ivory over here, man. <laughs> Newlyweds over here, they finishing each other's sentences. Y'all supposed to be doing that 10 to 15 years later. Y'all got it, y'all all right. He keeps the covenant by making a commitment. It was a covenant to obey the Lord. How did he do it? He removed everything, verse 33. He removed everything that was detestable from all the lands belonging to the Israelites. And he required all who were present in Israel to serve the Lord their God. Throughout his reign, they did not turn aside from following the Lord, the God of their ancestors. Now, this isn't a one-to-one -one story. We're not kings of Israel. 
kings of America, kings of even our church. But there is a framework here that is a blueprint for what we do. So I'm going to answer three questions quick, and then we're going to double down on this next week to see what does the covenant look like for us. Same question that I asked of them, I ask of us. Why should we make a covenant? Even if you don't believe that God is judging our church, sure, you cannot look around and be like, everything is sweet. You have to at least acknowledge just by observation that the church is in trouble. We're judging every Supreme Court law like, oh, no, they're going to vote against us. We're hoping they legislate things so that we don't suffer. There's nothing wrong with that. We should want that. I'm, the, I'm, I'm with restraining evil in any capacity, any form. But something's not right. Something's not right. The church, is, the church for a Christian nation does not have the influence that we should have. We've talked about why that is. Some of why that is, at least. So why should we make a covenant? Here's why. Ephesians 1. Verse 3. I couldn't even stop. I was going to do one or two verses. I couldn't stop. I had to keep going. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him, we also have received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. And in him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. This is why we make a covenant. This is why we make a covenant. What is the covenant that we're making? Matthew 22, 37 to 40. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So what's the covenant? We're going to obey the law of God. So now how do we keep the covenant? Josiah tore, tore down poles and burned altars and all of that. I wouldn't recommend that today. <laughs> how do we keep the covenant? Matthew 7, 12. Therefore, whatever you wish others would do for you, do also to them. Do also the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. How do we keep the covenant? Galatians 6.10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, 
Let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. That's specific. That's specific. Now, we need to sort of, in our day and age, click, drop down menu to what are some of the categories in that specificity, but that's specific. Because I would venture to say this, and who am I? I'm not the Lord. We know that. I do know a little bit more about than just our church. I am around a little bit more than that, but I, I, I can't say this as if I'm the Lord, but I say this with, I, I believe it to be true. That I don't think many believers have stopped and said, you know what? We all, we'll ask who is our neighbor, but not how do I love my neighbor as myself? Or specifically, okay, what do I want others to do for me so that I can do the same for them? When's the last time you just thought about that? Spent days. I'm not talking about, well, I had a quiet time and that was it. I'm talking about, no, we're inundated with too many other rival thoughts and perspectives. We don't think like that. Because, again, I think because of the judgment that we're under, we're forgetting who the real enemy is. So now the enemy is you voted for them. How could you? Or you believe this. Now, I'm not saying we approve of everything. No, 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 no. Now, anybody who knows me knows I'm not saying that. But that's different than you're the enemy, though. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean we have to loving means, hey, I approve and accept you. We'll make a case next week. That's not biblical. But they're not the enemy, though. People have been taken captive to do the devil's will. So the scripture says, as we have opportunity, some of us don't have the same opportunity, so it's going to be different. But as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all. Now, for some, that may be politics. Praise God. But it can't only be that. Because we're putting our hope in people to make decisions who we've seen, at least in my limited lifespan, it doesn't always work out to be what you thought it was going to be. So what does that mean as we have opportunity to let us work for the good of all, not just the believers, all people, but especially for those who profess, or as he says here, who belong to the household of faith. We have to make a covenant. We might think, oh, yeah, I know that to be true. Okay. We're not talking about do we know what it is. We're talking about do we actually believe it and then strive to do it. That's a different thing because it requires a concerted intentionality. It requires an effort that I think many of us, if we're honest, are just too tired to do, too distracted to do. So we're just hoping against hope and grace is amazing and we're gonna make it to the end and praise God. But I think God is requiring more of us, not in a legalistic way, but just in a listen. The culture is happening where it is, but I have people there, I have you there. I don't want to stand before the Lord and be like, man, I put you in America. I put you there. Yes, I let this happen. Of course I did. But I put you there. I put you there. Let's look at what did you believe about me? We are compelled because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all the blessings that we have inherited as listed in this Ephesians 1. So we make a covenant to love the Lord God. Yes, we're going to fail it. Knowing you're going to fail it doesn't mean you don't make it to keep it. Yeah. 
It wasn't like Josiah was like, ain't nobody ever going to sin again. I doubt that's what he was doing. Because perfectionism is impossible. Josiah knows that. But he made a covenant to follow the Lord because it's what we should do. It's the right thing to do to strive after it. We don't, we don't make excuses because we know we can't keep it. We strive after it because God said do it. Next week, we're going to drill down in just these details with one more New Testament illustration that Jesus laid out. And we're going to try to be very specific about what does it look like to keep this covenant. We're going to review this next Sunday, and that'll conclude this Stay Balanced series. And this is our way out. Look, we've inherited a culture that we didn't create. We've inherited, we are living in the consequences of decisions that have been happening that we were unaware of, some things before we were born. No one's to blame in and of itself. But once we're made aware of things, then it becomes our responsibility. This isn't about pretending like you're a racist if you're white or that you're this if you're... This is about saying, if I'm a Christian, I have a responsibility because God is real. Because God has saved me and given me faith. I have a responsibility to restore the grace of God as best as he will allow me to. As I have opportunity, not everyone has the same opportunities But some of us have plenty of them. What are we doing with those? Lord, we thank you for your grace. And we pray that you would help us to be people who know you, who believe in you, who know your word, who make a covenant with you. Somewhat metaphorical because we already believe in you. But I pray that you would help us to know specifically how do we, how do we think about our own selves? Lord, are, are we challenged by even being able to articulate what we need from ourselves, what we want from others? Lord, you're not talking about superficial things like money or you're talking about character, fruits of the spirit. How do we want people to treat us? Lord, I pray in this next week before the next message that you would help us to think about this specifically. Help us to put in the category, what opportunities do we actually have? What opportunities can we make for ourselves based upon the culture we currently live in? But Lord, it has to start personally. Lord, let us not run to community first. Many of us go to, well, what should we do? Who do we vote for? Who do we think? What do we, who do we endorse? What do we do? Lord, help us get back to, okay, what do we actually believe? What do we believe right now? Who do we believe right now? Lord, by your grace, help us to glorify you. And whatever opportunity you give us, help us make a difference in our culture. And help us as we have relationships with other people to provoke other people who profess to believe in you, others who are in the household of faith. Help us to know, to influence, and to, and to help. But first, help us to do the personal work first. 
Help us to be like Josiah in that sense. To grieve. Teach us how to grieve. To lament. As Mike was talking about the book that they're reading, weeping. Help us to lament, Lord. Because your glory, as you said in Romans 2, the name of you is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of us. Because of the church. Give us faith. Personal and communal for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen, Pastor Kurt. Um, just a reminder for those who have any questions, please text those to 240-623-8076. We do have uh, one question that's come in, and the person asks, um, is there precedent for the Lord judging the church uh, like in Chronicles, but post-cross after Jesus? So since Jesus, is there any precedent for uh, mm -hmm. the Lord judging the church like he judged his people in Chronicles? Mm -hmm. So you're looking for a verse that says that? First Peter 4 talks about judgment begins in the household of God. And he makes the point if the household of God, now this is Peter saying this shortly after Jesus has ascended and gone into glory, right? Mm -hmm. So Peter makes the case judgment begins in the household of God. And if the, so he doesn't say what that means, but he's saying judgment. He talks about it in grandiose terms. He talks about it in big picture terms. He doesn't make it seem like he's judging. And the context makes it seem like God's judging. Mm -hmm. And he says if, if the church of God is barely going to make it, what does that say about those who don't believe in God? So you get this precedent. You get, now it depends on how you interpret Revelation. Some people think that those seven churches are sort of a, a, a a microcosm of the church universal, and you see God calling churches to repent and obey or else. Mm -hmm. uh, but is there a one-to-one -one verse? God is judging them? Of course not. I mean, some things are, you know, we, we, you get verses like Romans 12, 1, we discern what the will of the Lord is, right? Some things are, we pay attention, we look, we see these things, and we think, wow, what's happening? You see stuff like Romans 1 happening, where Paul's explaining what happened to the world as God gives people over to their sins. You look at 2 Timothy 3 and 4, where he lists out, in the last days, all this stuff is going to be happening. I mean, Jesus tells us there will be wars and rumors of wars, and these things must happen. So you got a lot of verses that if you take those and put them in a context and look at our culture, I think you can make a case that, yeah, there is a biblical case for that. Is it the same as like Israel? No, because Israel... Israel was a nation. It was a theocracy. So these were people specifically set apart, given their own land and own community and their own laws. We don't, the church doesn't live like that. We're everywhere. We're all over the place. So, so I do, but I do think judgment does happen. I think the Lord gives people over to their sinfulness, like Romans 1, and we're in the midst of that culture. And you see the church losing its saltiness considerably. And to the point now where it's just almost like fair game to mock the church. It's ridiculous right now in ways that it used to never be. So that, that's what I would say to that. It's a good question. Uh, another person 
<clears throat> excuse me, asks, uh, for those of us who may not face the same barriers or challenges or even have the same types of needs, how do we evaluate what uh, the working out, what the working out of Matthew 7, 12 really looks like? Well, I'd rather save that for next week, to be honest, because we're going to spend the whole message next week. So we've left Josiah. I think we got the framework. I may briefly refer to it, but we're going to spend the whole sermon next week talking about what does Matthew 7, 12 look like practically? And then how, in, in Ephesians 6, uh, Galatians 6, 10, and then there's another uh, narrative that Jesus told that we're going to look at that as well to kind of get some kind of practical application. I would say this, though, for right now, I think train yourself how to grieve over what's happening. Mm. Like, I don't know who, who's asking the question. I don't know what opportunities you have. Like, again, we'll get into that next week. But just start with, like, um, don't, don't worry. Right now, and again, I don't know who you are, but don't think about, like, what should you do? Think about, like, what do I, how do I feel? Mm. What do I believe? How do I grieve over what's happening? I just think there hasn't been, I mean, Lamentations is in the scriptures for a reason, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there are some psalms that don't, <laughs> I love that the, we talk about this in biblical counseling, the, the psalms are the emotions of the believers, mm -hmm. right? So the Lord allows a number of emotions to happen in the psalms. There's psalms that are like, man, Lord, you are the bright star of my morning. Mm -hmm. Then it's like, Lord, man, you shut off all the lights. Right. You know, there's just this range of, Lord, you are everywhere, and I just love what you do. And it's like, Lord, where are you at? Mm -hmm. How long is this going to keep happening? Like, you get a range of emotion, and I think we need to say, hey, that's okay. Yeah. I think sometimes we think verses like James 1 and 2, count it all joy. It's like, man, that's a command and a process. Right. <laughs> and the reason why he said that, and he said, look, because the Lord is doing some work when you're going through these trials. Like, he's saying... Count it joy only because of the trials you're going through. But man, every, almost all the suffering in the scriptures is from people who are godly. Mm. Like the godly people suffer, man. They, the Lord, they, I don't know anybody who's like, man, Lord, give me more, Lord. I'm, I don't know. Any, I mean, Paul, look at 2 Corinthians 11. Paul lists all these ways that he thought, look, I struggled. I was beaten. I was mm. this. I was that. I was that. Hebrews 11, they were sawn in two, persecuted. I mean, you just... I just think like there, there's, there's, there's a lot going on. So I think the idea of being able to allow those emotions, I mean, I've said this plenty of times, complaining about God is a sin. Complaining to God is a song. And I think sometimes we just don't complain to God enough. We don't cry out to God enough. We want somebody to talk to. We want to mm -hmm. vent about God. And by, by venting about God, I mean complaining about our circumstances that we're in. We want to vent about God. But we don't want to take time and cry out to God. That hour conversation that you're having with somebody in your D group, you can give 30 minutes of that to the Lord. You might not even need to call the person in your D group. I ain't saying don't call people. I'm, you know, I'm a proponent of that. But I mean, man, where's the Lord at in some of this stuff? And I just think we've, we've just, and it's easy. We just, we're distracted. I'm, I'm, the Lord has reminded me how distracted I get. There are times I pray out loud because if I just try to pray, my mind, my mind goes all over the place. I remember songs from when I was a kid that I haven't sang in 30 years. I remember stories, something to make me laugh. I get the notification. Let me check this real quick. Oh, let me just look on this real quick. I want to see. Let me Google this real quick so I don't forget to do it. Next thing I know, man, my time is gone. I have to pray out loud so that I can just focus on the Lord and hear myself pray. Now, lately, I've been taking my thoughts captive, so I'm like, nah, I'm praying quiet. And every time a thought comes, I'm like, I'm sorry, Lord, I shouldn't be thinking about that. I'm taking that thought captive. I'm I'm not going to let my mind beat me to the point where I can't pray unless mm -hmm. I'm speaking out loud, but it's, I'm distracted. 
We live in a culture where we have access to almost everything, all kinds of information, and so we're just desensitized to the information that we actually need, which is the word. That's a good segue to this uh, question. Um, how do you think we should be less distracted from the culture, society, and the world, and the world really, when they are so normalized to follow these days? It's hard for me to answer that question because I don't, I don't, I don't want to put rules on people, right? So this personal conviction, I think you have to look at what like distracts you. Mm. So here's the thing, right? We talked about this a long time ago. In the Old Testament, all the commands, you look at the Ten Commandments, right? The majority of those commands are do not do this, right? Mm -hmm. Do not, do not, do not, do not, do not, do not. So they're all put-offs, put-offs. But when the Spirit comes in the New Testament, it's not just don't, it's, it's not put-offs, it's put-on, right. right? It's not do not, it's do this, mm -hmm. you know, put on this, mm -hmm. put this on, put on the armor of God, mm -hmm. right? He, Ephesians 6, all that, so put-ons, right? I think sometimes we have to think, we think about putting off, but we don't think about putting on. Mm -hmm. So like, okay, if you think, man, I'm on social media too much and you put that off, if you don't put something on mm -hmm. in this place, you're going to go right back to it. Mm -hmm. You're just going to go right back to it. You can't, we can't look at our life. And I, this is, I, man, I failed miserably doing this. Whenever I make a commitment to put something off, if I, if I, I usually forget to put something on and then that, that off becomes the on again. Mm -hmm. You have to, we have to think, okay, the spirit, we put things on. What am I going to put in its place? That's what makes it hard about giving up the, the pleasure, the guilty pleasures of sometimes social media, right? Or binge watching a show. You know, not nowadays, man, that's the worst thing. That could have. Uber Eats and all that, having food delivered and then, and then having the ability to watch a show a straight way through has been the death of me and many other people. I don't got to go out getting up and I don't got to cook nothing. It's like, man, they'll be here in 30 minutes and then we can watch this show. And it'd be like, let's watch another episode. Let's watch another one. And I'll watch four, five, 42-minute episodes and not realize that adds up to about three and a half hours. And I spent maybe 45 minutes to an hour with the Lord that day. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that one has to cancel. I'm not saying you got to spend four hours with the Lord. For every, I don't want to do that. But what I'm saying is you ha we have to each of us evaluate, okay, what, what's distracting me? And don't just say, okay, I'm going to put off going on Facebook, but then I'm going to spend more time on YouTube. Like, it doesn't... It's if, if, you know what I'm saying? I know people that do that. And I'm going to put off, watch, I ain't going to watch this stuff. I'm going to get off Instagram, but then I'm going to watch this, this show on TV. You know, I'm going to binge watch. It's, again, you have to say, what is, people here laugh because they do it too. You have to say, what do I need to put off and what do I put on in this place? I think that's where a lot of us, and I, I, I'm guilty. I am 100% guilty as charged. So I'm not coming down the mountain with two stone tablets here. I'm guilty. It's putting things off, and you can do that for a while, but then you get bored. Mm -hmm. Then you're tired, and you're just like, man, I don't feel like reading right now. Mm -hmm. It's 10.30. I'm not, I'm not trying to go to bed yet, but I don't feel like reading and praying because I'm, and then you just think, man, let me just watch a quick show. I've been, it's only, I've, I've, been, I've, been, I've, been dis, I've been taking good care of myself. It's been two days. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's because we haven't put anything on in its place. So put things on in its place that I think are, uh, that would be biblically helpful for you to distance yourself from that. And then you'll find that if you just add, add to what the Spirit is doing, add to those things, mm -hmm. you might find that, okay, I can, there's a healthy balance here. Mm -hmm. This isn't rivaling my time with the Lord. I don't think the Lord is like, man, don't watch this stuff and don't do that. Sure, I can't point to a verse that says that. But I do think, man, the Lord would prefer us to desire to spend more time with him 
and us to desire to be more like a Josiah. Now he ain't had a technology we had. If he ever had an iPhone, I don't know how he would have. I don't know how he would have been. But he, but that's not a reality. Reality is we do still responsible for. He had distractions in his day. He had everybody around him doing the opposite. So it's 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 just we have to kind of put on. What are the put-ons? Don't just think put off. What are the put-ons? So this next question is. Um, related to, to blame. Um, well, you spoke of mourning for our own sin, mm -hmm. that if we don't mourn, we tend to blame others. Can you just elaborate a little bit more on that? So I think, right, it's, it's, so my wife will say this to me from time to time. She'll say this. And it's, it's sometimes it'll be in a, in a conflict. I'm, I'm a stubborn dude. So my wife will be like, man, you get defensive whenever I bring something up. And I'll be like, babe, who doesn't get defensive, though? Like, no one is thinking, hey, please correct me, give me more, right? No one, everyone gets defensive. And she's right, I can't get defensive, but she can get defensive. Everybody, my kids get defensive. If they know, like, son, I need you to come, they'll be like, oh, man, well, you know, they're pensive. Like, what's going on? Everyone gets defensive because no one wants to be told, hey, you're doing something wrong, right? We all want to think, like, so we all get defensive. We may display it differently. You know, when I was a kid and my mother would be sometimes rightly correcting me, I would be, I'd be telling like I'm looking at her, but I would look just above her head and be singing Scooby-Dooby-Doo, where are you? Because I ain't want to hear it, especially if it's true. <laughs> you really don't want to. So I think, I think what I mean is we can, because we don't like to experience any conviction or know that we're doing wrong, we tend to make excuses for why we acted that way. So we tend to think, well, you, you know, you, you know, you, I'm, I'm, ang I'm sinning against you because you talk to me in a tone of voice I ain't like. That's not, that's not, <laughs> listen, <laughs> Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So you, this is in your heart. This is why when I'm counseling people and they say, well, I didn't mean to say that, you absolutely did. That's in your heart. You just didn't mean for it to be heard and didn't mean for that person to be offended, baby. But you, this is what you believe, though, right? Well, let's, hey, let's let our theology and our reality come together, right? So. So what I think is, I do this often, and I'm fighting against it by the grace of God, and I think, but I think it's just easy to think, okay, if, you, if, I'm, if there's something wrong with me, it's because you're making me do it. So if I read a, a post on Facebook, and I, get a, and I don't like it, and then I post something back to be snarky or to be, I call it snarky, but it's really just self-righteous, right? Mm -hmm. Or sinfully judgmental, and then I justify it by, well, you think this. That's not, before the Lord, that's making an excuse, that's blame. This is where Adam and Eve, and, this is, and we've inherited this, right? Let's go back to inheritance. This is what Adam and Eve do, right? They sin against the Lord. The Lord gave them, look, you can have every tree in the garden. It would be like this. We go outside. There's every car out there. Just don't drive the Bentley. You got a Porsche out there. You got a Corvette. You got a Cadillac Escalade. You got all, that's why I would be person. You got all this stuff out there, right? Just don't drive the Bentley. And you get out there, you look around like, wow, these are some nice cars. But hey, look at the rims on that Bentley, though. And you'd be like, hey, look, let's just, I mean, we ain't going to drive it, drive it. But let's just go inside and then, right? And you go in and you, you know, and, and, and then when you, you turn it on and you just, just real quick, like, let's just see how it runs. Let's just stay in the parking lot. We're not going to go out there. Let's just stay in the parking lot. You go in the parking lot. I come out and be like, what you doing? You got what you doing? Oh, we just took it in the parking lot. Well, why did you do that? Because it was, we just wanted to see what it was like. I mean, we, you know, we, we, this is what Adam and Eve did. They just make excuses. God comes to Adam. What, what, who told you you were naked? What have you done? It was the woman. It was the woman you gave to me. 
First he said it was the woman you gave to me, right? So he blames God, then Eve. <laughs> Eve says, the serpent deceived me. And God said, you all are at fault. I think we just, we've inherited that. Blame is something we've inherited. I don't want to be told if I did something wrong, then it's because you said this. And it's like, that's not what Jesus said. He said, look, man, he was being persecuted. He was actually keeping alive the men who were putting the nails in his flesh. If scripture is right, which I think it is, in Hebrews 1, that he holds all things together, he's keeping alive the people who are crucifying him. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. These are men who had crucified hundreds, thousands of other men. They knew exactly what they were doing. But what he said was, they don't know who they're doing it to. Forgive them. Like he wasn't even blaming them, even though he didn't sin. So I think our responsibility is to say, you know what, there's some truth in this. There's some truth in here for me, and I need to own that and not say, oh, because of cancel culture or because of this person or these people. Or, ah, that's not really true. I, I, think we, I think we make too many excuses and we miss opportunities to grow and grieve and be biblically mature because there's always somebody else. It's always this, this political party or this people or this, pop, this person, that person. It's this person. It's these people, that people. This is that. It's my dog. It's, you know, I couldn't find my keys. It's... it's all types of stuff. It's, you spill, kids spill juice on the floor. It's always something. And I think sometimes the something is you yes. and me. So. Uh, so how should we love our brothers and sisters when they blame God, the government, even the church for the problems of this world? Um, for this person, it's hard to hear this argument and love them sometimes. We'll talk about that more next week. So, I, I, and I, and I, 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 I want to say this because I, I can connect with that. I'm, it's difficult to do. But I would say the problem is, is, is you. Because if you think about what Jesus commands and what he demonstrates, like Jesus is the only one that had the, that had the, that could have been angry at people. Like, so I, mm. I think what you, well, this is what you need to do. You need to look at stuff like John 8, right? So the adulterous woman comes in. She, by the law that Jesus actually commit, made and gave to Moses, this woman should have been stoned to death. But what does Jesus say to her? First, he says to the men who brought her, he who has no sin cast the first stone. Then he goes down on the floor and he draws. Probably the most complicated game of tic-tac-toe ever played. Jesus is doing it. <laughs> then he gets back up and he says, where are your accusers? She says, they're gone, my Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The woman at the well. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm reading John, the Gospel of John, very slowly. So I'm just going through. So I'm in, I just got to chapter 5. I'm just taking my time and just rereading. Sometimes I look at the commentary and see what they say. And, but I'm just blown away by Jesus. And when he's talking to the woman at the well, I, I just, I've always seen it, but it just hit me one day the other day I was reading it. He goes, he says, <laughs> so... He says, go and get and bring back your husband. And she says, I have no husband, right? And he says, you're right. And he says, the man you are currently with now is not your husband. So before he even gets to, the, the, you're living in adultery right now. The man you're, forget you've married how many times, and that's, that could be adultery on a biblical level, depending on what happened. But he says this. The man you're with now is not your husband. 
And she says, oh, I sent it to a prophet. And he's like, yeah. And what does he do? He's gracious with her. And then they, she goes back and tells people, he's in Samaria. Mm -hmm. I don't think people understand that. One day we're going we're gonna to do a series on biblical animosity, mm -hmm. right? We need to show people the, how much the Jews and Samaritans hate each other. Mm -hmm. And so he's in Samaria at a well. He's talking to a woman. About, even she says, why are you a Jew asking me for a drink? She said, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. And what does he say? If you knew who it was asking you, you'd be asking me for a drink, and I would give you living water. He was gracious. She was wicked, sinful, and he had compassion on her. You look at Mary and Martha, and you see her all offended. She's angry at God. Jesus is sitting there. I talked about this before. Jesus is sitting there. She's all upset, you know, trying to fix stuff up and all of this stuff. And then she finally says, Lord, don't you care that I'm doing all this work? Can you tell Mary to help me, please? And he says, Martha, Martha. You're anxious about many things. He doesn't correct it. There was, he understood that people, then you look at John, John the Baptist, Luke 7. I use that all the time. John the Baptist says, man, go ask the Lord, is he really the Messiah or not? And then what does he say? Blessed is the one who's not offended because of me. Like he understands that people are going to be offended. They're going to be hurt. The challenge is we have to be okay to let people do that. God doesn't need us to defend his reputation. He doesn't need us to defend him. He just needs us to graciously. What I would meditate on is meditate on 2 Timothy 2, verses 22 through 26. If the person is a believer, then just they might be, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, they might be faint-hearted. They might need encouragement. They might be weak. You know, you have to figure out who that is. But, and again, it's hard work, right? It is. It's hard. Believe me, as a black man, I hate hearing dudes, people, either online or in, in barbershop, whatever, make it seem like if you black and you work in Christianity, it's a white man's religion. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, on one level, I love those things because I'm like, well, let's, uh, let's talk about that. Let's get into history. But then sometimes I hate that. They say, you a pastor? Oh, man, this dude, man. First thing they say, let me guess, you voted for, you know, it's just, it's just it, you can't even be a Christian and be black right. in some circles. And so it's just like, but you know what, though? It's like, hey, man, I, you know what? I respect that you feel that way. I respect that you feel that way. Because their biggest problem is that they need the Lord. They need the Lord. Your struggle is not, I mean, you know. So anyway, it's not easy. It's not easy. It's hard. But I think we're obligated by the example of Christ and by the things that well, I'm just saying to do that. I, I take that First Timothy, Second Timothy 2. Verses 2 through, I mean, uh, 2 through 26. I think that'll serve you. All right, two more questions. Uh, the first one is, how would you speak to grieving the spiritual bankruptcy of our culture slash nation and having a balance of affirming the justness of God's judgment on unrighteousness while remaining hopeful for the redemption and restoration God will bring? Good God, just like the appetizer, the meal and dessert right there. We'll talk about it next week. So I, yeah, so I don't, I don't think, okay, so we're, we're, we don't have the capacity sometimes to do everything that God tells us to do in the moment, right? So I think we have to think about things in terms of stages and think of it like, you know what? I just want to grieve over what's happening. And, and here's the other thing, too. That, that's a, it's a really, I'm glad you asked that question. That's a really great question, whoever that is. But understand one thing, though. Understand one thing. We never... In the spirit, we're never focusing on one thing, right? 
We're always focusing on almost everything. We're always doing everything even if we're focusing on one thing. Let me give you an example, right? Let's just say you're focusing on anger. You're reading verses on anger. You're meditating on that. It's not like you're saying, hey, because I'm focusing on anger, let me go ahead and lie and steal and have sex outside of marriage and let me go ahead and gossip and slander. No, you're not doing that either. Mm -hmm. You're still not trying to do those things, but you're, you're focusing on this, right? So all those things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. They kind of overlap in different ways. We can grieve, like when Jesus is coming in on the donkey, right, in Matthew 22, mm -hmm. And he grieves over Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets. Like he grieves over the fact that there, he could be, I'm angry because they're rejecting me. But he recognizes, man, you grieve over the prophets. He grieve, you kill the prophets and he cries over that. It's the only other time Jesus cries. He cries over that because he sees that happening. So we have the capacity to actually grieve but recognize that God is a just God. So my grieving is not because God is doing something. My grieving is that God has to do it because people are not submitted to God. Yeah. It's just like hell. I think about hell. Mm -hmm. I'm not angry at God that he created hell. I think he's a, he has a right. Because I know, I mean, all of us, if we were hurt or someone sinned against us or took a loved one from us, we would want justice, right? If anything, we'd want that person to at least spend their life in prison. Someone murders someone you love or rapes someone you love, you're going to want justice. God's no different, right? So the justice for God, though, just happens to be eternal because he sent his son, right? So I don't get mad. I don't grieve over the fact that hell exists. I grieve over the fact that God had to send people there. There's some people, and some people, you know, so there's just, there's ways to do this that don't, aren't mutually exclusive. But I would think in stages, so maybe it's, man, let me just spend some time just grieving. And then it's not grieving over justice. It's just grieving that, man, look at what's happening here. Because our grieving is not going to stop it either, right? It's not like we could have a cry session every week for the next, and it's not going to stop what's happening. But it, it's not, it may not change what's happening, but it may change us and make us more sensitive. And who knows how God will use that. So I think we, you, you can grieve, but also recognize that God's justice is real and that it's going to happen. But I'm not grieving that his justice is happening in and of itself. That's a part of who God is. I don't want to compartmentalize him to just be this fun-loving God who just approves of everything. And I just don't, I think, nah, he, if, I, if, if you hurt my son, it's going to be the grace of God that holds back my wrath. So I can't imagine what it means to trample the son underfoot, as Hebrews talks about, by rejecting the cross. So, yeah, I, I think we'll get into some of this next week. But I think, I don't know if they're, I think it's just, it's a, it's a process. Okay, I need to grieve. I need to recognize God's judgment. And then I forgot what the third one was. Mm -hmm. um, but we'll get remain into some hopeful more. And remain hopeful. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, well, hopeful to me is the easiest one. It depends on what you're hopeful about, I guess. Mm -hmm. If you're hopeful for specific change in particular people or the nation, mm -hmm. you, might, you might be discouraged. I don't know. It depends on how you process hope. Mm -hmm. Hope to me is, that, is the restoration of all things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't think about hope much in a cleansing of America, cleansing of the church sense. I think of hope as in one day, we're going to be with the Lord. Amen. We're not going to need faith because we're going to see him. Right. And it says when we see him, we'll be like him. Amen. Glorified body, break dancing again. Amen. All the stuff that we, being with other believers, no longer tempted, worshiping God. Like my hope is going to that. 
It doesn't mean I don't have hope for change in America. I'm here. I got, I got to have hope. I got three kids. I want them to grow up. Right. I got to have hope. But I don't ultimately, so it depends on what you're hoping for, but I think hope is in the character of God yeah. and what he's promised. Yes, sir. Hope is in the fact that he never leaves us or forsakes us. And even though it looks like it, even though the culture around us makes us seem like, man, Lord, how where are you at? Right. I don't see you. But remember, when we don't see God working in the world, we got to look and see him working in his word. And so, again, that's, that's where I'd say the hope is, is there. But it's a process, right? These are, these are all frameworks that we have to be intentional about. And if we're intentional, I think the Lord will help meet us in that intentionality. All right, here's the last one. Uh, the way that Josiah didn't, uh, didn't just destroy the high places in his kingdom, but in all of Israel really sticks out to this person who submits this question. Um, can you say more about how he did that and what that shows us, uh, whether that shows us anything in terms of how, um, how to apply what we're learning to communal repentance? So there's no one-to-one necessarily, right? So we take, we glean from some things from scripture and some things we can't, right? So my application would not be, let's get some torches and burn down false teachers, churches, and stuff like that. I I think the New Testament way that we do that is what we talked about, by doing good to everyone as we have opportunity, especially those in the household of faith. Where Josiah is unique is that he was the king, right? So he was given, and it was a theocracy. It was, so he was given a specific role in God's kingdom, God specifically chose him to have the role of king. So there was a level of authority and responsibility that he had that we don't. So it's not a blueprint in a one-to-one that everything he did, we did. But there are some things that we can do to push back against the unrighteousness in our culture. And I think, but, but here's the other challenge. Look at 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says, look, why are you judging the outsiders? talking about unbelievers. He says, God judges the outsiders. He said, purge the evil from among you. He said, it's God who judges the outside. So we have to be, and this is why we'll get into this more next week, because we have to be careful, because one of the ways that I think the church has failed historically that we've inherited is not, I use slavery and all that and racism as a context, but it's much deeper than that. And I think one of the ways that we failed historically, and maybe we've done this as well. I know I've done this as well, so I'm about to indict myself is that we've, we've, we've judged the church according to the scripture standards. And that's not what we're supposed to do. So we'll judge people who are non-Christians according to what the Bible says, but these people don't believe in the Bible. They don't believe, they don't have the spirit of God. So I expect this person to act like this. And that's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 5. What, why am I judging outsiders? He said, I'm not judging those folks. Those people are supposed to act like that. God will judge them. You judge the people who profess to believe what you believe that are not supposed to act like that. And I think what we've done is we've switched it. So the church will allow for people to act that way and be like, well, that's just the, you know, you know. but then we'll be self-righteous and judge the world. But we can't do that. We're supposed to save the world. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world or judge it. So we're still here. We're not here to condemn the world or judge it. We're supposed to save people as someone said last week in the question, snatch him out of the fire, Jude 22. I think we failed in that way. I know I've done that. You hold, so you see somebody, a girl comes, walks into church. She's not a believer. She's immodest. You're like, man, look at how she's dressed. And somebody might be like, I'm sorry, could you? I remember, I remember being, oh, uh, man. 
man, story, story, story. I remember being in context where you're just correcting non-Christians for how they act and stuff. And don't get me wrong, there's some stuff that's like, okay, you wild, wild, you just can't, that's just not what we do here. But on one level, it's like, man, okay, this girl's not even a believer. Like, okay, so her skirt is really small. Men, discipline yourself, right? So it's like we, it's just, we're just always correcting the world for what they do. I'm on Facebook, people just be, look at this, and they be quoting celebrities and people and then putting a scripture behind it. They're not believers. <laughs> they belong to the devil. Like, this is what the scripture says. <laughs> like, what are they supposed to do? Like, they, that, that's what they're supposed to do. So I think on one level, it's like we have to understand that, like, that's the world we live in. We're in the world, not of it. And because of that, Jesus said, look, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you because we're going to be different. But we're not supposed to judge. That's what we lost. Jesus didn't judge. He judged. He judged the teachers of the law for being hypocritical. He didn't judge the people who listened to the teachers. He judged the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. He didn't even judge Rome. He didn't even judge Rome. He just said, look, these people, these people don't believe. He said, why do you say before they know not what they do? He said, they don't understand what's going on here. I need to be merciful towards them because they got bigger problems. Because if, if they don't get saved... It's just not a good look. But, but so I think we've just failed in that way. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I think the reason why I'm saying it's complicated is because if we start going around and, well, Josiah, we do this, it's like, well, it's not, we're not all believers in this area. We're not all believers in our city or in our county, even in our neighborhoods. So we can't be held in like town vigils like, we need to repent, restore glory to God. And people be like, yeah, praise Allah. They won't know who you talking about. There's, so there's a lot, it's a little bit more complicated, but we're going to talk about what are the opportunities that we have and to do good to, to people within those opportunities? That would be the focus of next week's message. We'll try to get as specific as we can. That it? Yeah, that was it. Couple, couple, couple announcements, though. Please don't forget to see Jasmine before you leave. Also, we do have one another this week on Wednesday, so looking forward to seeing everybody there. And remember, we do have to straighten up before uh, we leave for the other church. With that being said, that's all I got, bro. And pray for me. I need some super glue. I broke my flip-flop, so I got to go pick up my son. Don't have time. Go home first. So I need some super glue or some real good tape. If anybody got any good tape. We got any good tape in here? Or oh, oh, super glue. Need some of that. I'll put the silver tape on, but I'm gangster. I, don't, I could care less. <laughs> all right, guys. Solid Rock Church, we'll see you Wednesday night. Looking forward to it.